Good morning. My name is Jan Baugh, and I'm a member of this congregation. And I'll be reading today from the Common English Bible, 1 Kings 13, 1 through 19. So if you're interested in looking up in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 441. Hear now the word of the Lord. A man of God came from Judah by God's command to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing at the altar burning incense. By the Lord's word, the man of God cried out to the altar, 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 the Lord says this, Look, a son will be born to the house of David. His name will be Josiah. He will sacrifice on you, altar, the very priests of the shrines who offer incense on you. They will burn human bones on you. At that time, the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign that the Lord mentioned. Look, the altar will be broken apart and its ashes will spill out. When the king heard the word of the man of God and how he cried out to the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched his hand from the altar and said, Seize him. But the hand that Jeroboam stretched out against the man of God grew stiff. Jeroboam wasn't able to bend it back to himself. The altar broke apart, and the ashes spilled out from the altar, just like the sign that the man of God gave by the Lord's word. The king said to the man of God, Plead before the Lord your God and pray for me so that I can bend my hand back. So the man of God pleaded before the Lord, and the king's hand returned to normal and was like it used to be. The king spoke to the man of God. Come with me to the palace and refresh yourself. Let me give you a gift. The man of God said to the king, Even if you gave me half your palace, I wouldn't go with you, nor would I eat food or drink water in this place. This is what God commanded me by the Lord's word. Don't eat food. Don't drink water. Don't return by the way you came. So the man of God went by a different way. He didn't return by the way he came to Bethel. Now there was an old prophet living in Bethel. His sons came and told him everything that the man of God had done that day at Bethel. They also told their father the words that he spoke to the king. Which way did he go? Their father asked them. His sons had seen the way the man of God went, when he came from Judah, the old prophet said to his sons, saddle my donkey. So they saddled his donkey, and he got on it. He went after the man of God and found him sitting underneath a terebinth tree. He said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? I am, he replied. The old prophet then said to him, come home with me and eat some food. But the man of God answered, I can't return or go with you, and I can't eat food or drink water with you in this place because of the message that came to me from the Lord's word. Don't eat food, don't drink water, don't return by the way you came. The old prophet said to the man of God, I'm also a prophet like you. A messenger spoke to me with the Lord's word. Bring him back with you to your house. 
so that he may eat food and drink water. But the old prophet was lying to him. So the man of God went back with the old prophet. He ate food in his home and drank water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So how many people have heard that story before? Yeah, one, good. I see one hand. I've had one hand in each third. It's awesome. The online, if you're joining us online, have you heard that story before? I stumbled across it. I said, hey, I, I was looking for a, a story about a priest, a king, or a prophet, and I got a priest and a, a king and a prophet, so I stuck with this one. So uh, I just wanted to say uh, thank you to all our preachers this summer that have preached this summer. Uh, I've been off uh, taking a little hiatus for about six weeks, and different preachers have been coming in. They've done a great job. I think it's great for us to hear from other voices and other perspectives and get other insights into God's Word. So I think it's good not just to hear one voice all the time, but there is one voice we hope to hear every time, and that's the voice of God speaking into our lives, maybe not audibly, but maybe God's Spirit speaks to our spirit. When we worship together, when we listen to God's Word, there's something that God wants to say to us, and that's true for us today. So uh, strange story, and we only heard half the story. I'm going to give you the rest of the story, but I thought, you know, we'll leave you hanging so that at least you pay attention for a little bit, and to, so you listen for the rest of the story. There's more to this story than what we heard so far. But uh, have you all noticed that uh, any false advertising in on the internet? Have you all ever seen anything false? So I've noticed something that's been popping up recently, and what's happened is that you'll see some It'll, it'll look like it's a news article. Basically, the ad is actually, it looks like a news article like this. Uh, you know, this looks like it's a Fox News article. And the headline says, Big Pharma outraged over Charles Stanley's latest business venture. He fires back with this. And so you're like, oh, man, this is what we call clickbait, right? And so you think, I'm going to click. i got to find out what's happening with Charles Stanley, especially Christians, right? This is actually an advertisement towards Christians, towards people of faith. Uh, this is Charles Sands. So you click on that ad, and then it's an article about CBD oil. And it's, sell, it's an ad for CBD oil and trying to get you to buy CBD oil and how Charles has started this new CBD oil uh, business, and he's given out free samples, blah, 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 blah. Totally false. Charles Stanley is not doing that. Charles Stanley has never done that. They've also done this with Kirk Cameron, another Christian celebrity. They've actually done this with Simone Biles because of the Olympics recently. And so... But the point is with this is that I, I look at this and I go, you're using the Christian faith. You're using the Christian faith to manipulate people, deceive people into buying your product, which says something about it. If someone has to deceive us to get us to buy their product, what does it say about their product? <laughs> it's probably also not true, right? So all the claims they're making are not true because they wouldn't have to resort to deception to try and sell it. So, you know, that goes along that with that. What troubles me about this is that it's gearing to, it's actually going after Christians, right? Trying to get us to buy this, what my dad used to call snake oil, right? Uh, this kind of false claim, making these false claims and manipulating people with Christian faith, right? Now, that's actually part of what we're seeing in the text today. We see a king and a prophet who manipulate God's power and God's word to get people to do what they want, to get to, to manipulate people to their agenda, right? Now, we would never do that, I'm sure. None of us would ever do that. No preacher would ever do that, right? 
But we're going to take a look at this passage today. So let's back up. We're going to look at, there's actually two kings and two prophets in this story. But I want to back us up and just kind of take a big picture snapshot of where we're at in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, and the history of Israel. So where we're at right now is the, we're in what's, what's called the divided kingdom of Israel. You don't have to need to know all the details on this slide, but you see there are three parts. The United Kingdom, the divided kingdom, and then there's the exile, and then the revived people. We're moving right now in this text from a united kingdom to a divided kingdom. So Exodus story, Moses leads Israelites out of Egypt. Then Joshua takes over, leads them into the promised land. Then judges take over, and they lead the people in the 12 tribes. And then at the end of the judges, book of Judges, the beginning of, the, of Samuel, the prophet Samuel, they ask for a king. And so they ask for a king. They get their first king, Saul. That's the United Kingdom. Then David. Then Solomon. So that's where we're at in Israel's history. We're right after Solomon has died. Now, there are two, the king that takes over after Solomon his name is Rehoboam, and Rehoboam takes over, and he goes to his elder statesmen and asks for counsel, and they say to him, be diplomatic, bring in the rest of the tribe. You know, we, we, they're already starting to see divisions in their kingdom. You need to win back, be diplomatic, bring back the other tribes of Israel into the kingdom and uh, stop this division. He doesn't like what they have to say. He goes to his young advisors. The young advisors say to him, hey, get tougher. Assert your power, take charge, take authority. So he does that, and he becomes more oppressive than Solomon was, and, how, and Solomon had become fairly oppressive towards the end of his reign. And so Rehoboam says, I'm going to be even harsher on the people, and this causes the people to say, hey, we don't want you as our king anymore. So they set up another guy named Jeroboam as their king in the north. So we have a divided kingdom. There's never a civil war. There's no battle. But I think we got a map. You can start to see what happens. So uh, do you love my Sunday school map? This is great. Sunday school characters. So there's Judah. And Judah, there's 12 tribes in Israel. Judah is the tribe of Judah. And they also include in southern Israel the tribe of Benjamin. And they have Jerusalem, the, the capital city. The 10 tribes to the north make up what's called Israel, and they're ruled by Jeroboam. So you got Rehoboam in the south, the king of the south, and you got Jeroboam, the king of the north, you know, starting to sound like Game of Thrones or something, isn't it? So, but that's actually what's going on, right? Um, so what happens is then Jeroboam in the north, because he doesn't have Jerusalem, where, people, where the temple is, he does something. He creates two golden calves. Now, he makes these two golden calves and sets up places, shrines, altars of worship in northern Israel so that people won't go to Jerusalem. <laughs> he, he wants to stop them from going to Jerusalem because he's afraid he'll lose power if, his, if people from the north start going to Jerusalem to worship. If they go there, then they'll start aligning themselves with Rehoboam. So he says, I'm going to set up my own places of worship and we're going to worship golden calves like Aaron did at the Exodus story. It's a reminder of that story, right? And then he sets up the shrine. The shrine we're at today in today's story is Bethel. And he's actually in worship. And he's offering incense to this golden calf that he's created because he's got a model for the people, right? And he is there. And this man of God, interestingly enough, the man of God was from the south. He was from Judah. And he comes in as a prophet and he says, look, what you're doing is not of God, it's wrong, 
and we're, you're, you're going to see a sign. The altar is going to be split in two, and the ashes on the, on the altar are going to run all over the place. And as soon as this prophecy comes out of the man of God, Jeroboam points his hand at him and says, seize him. But as he does that, God seizes him. God seizes and stiffens up his arm. He's permanently praising God now. You know, he's doing this. But he's stiffened up and he can't move his arm. He can't move his hand. Now, this is symbolic because the, the right, or it could be left, no offense to the left-handers in the crowd, the right hand of the king was the, was the hand of power. It was the, represented the power of the king. Might have worn a ring on that, the sign of power. And so what God is doing is symbolically saying, you're not in power, Jeroboam. You're not in charge. God is. And God does this in that moment. Now, Jeroboam realizes, okay, this really is God. And the altar splits. In fact, if you look at the text, verse 3, it says, this is the sign that the Lord mentioned. Look, the altar will be broken apart and its ashes will spill out. And that's what happens right there in the text, in the story. So what God is saying to Jeroboam is this, you, you can't manipulate me. God is saying to Jeroboam, you, you can't manipulate me. You can't tell me where it's, where, you can't do this, right? You may have power as an ki- earthly king, but ultimate power comes from God. And so Je- what Jeroboam is doing, he's trying to manipulate God's power and to his agenda to keep power. He's trying to manipulate and create places of worship and idols so that the people will follow him. He's not concerned about God. So God says, well, I think I'm going to have the last laugh on this one. Now, fortunately, God is a gracious God in this part of the story. And the prophet, he asks for prayer. The prophet prays for him, and he's healed, and his arm goes back to normal. And so this is a clear sign. So now, obviously, he says to this man of God, this prophet from Judah, he says, you need to, I, need, I want to give you a gift and thank you, and I want to offer you my hospitality. And that's where we learn that God's word had come to the prophet, says, don't eat, don't drink. And leave a different way than you came. So he had, God had commanded him very clearly. It's repeated multiple times in the text. He'd been commanded clearly not to do these things. So he refuses. And he goes on his way. So let me just pause here and ask a question. Do we ever erect our own idols in places of worship? We ever create I mean... Now, you and I, today, we don't go around making golden calves or setting up idols or things, but we, we actually don't do that. And, or we may, but we may set up our own places of worship today, right? We'll talk a little bit about that. But do you ever create your, an idol or worship an idol? Now, idols today for us may not be those physical objects. They could be. But I think the idol, an idol is anything that we devote ourselves to more than God. Think about it that way. So if I devote myself to something or someone more than I devote my time and attention and effort to God, that could potentially be an idol. And, and a lot of, there's a lot of good things in life that can become idols themselves. So for example, uh, uh, someone reminded me today, what about sports teams? Could they become an idol? Could we worship an, a sports team, right? And we give our time and attention and energy and passion too, right? Uh, I think the things that we I personally wrestle with, and, and probably others wrestle with, is like, what about work? 
Like, we can become workaholic. We can devote our lives to this work, to success, to career, to making money, right? And that could be actually more important to us than God. It doesn't mean, that, but God gave us the gift of work. So don't hear that, hear this in the, in the right frame. The, the, our ability to work is a gift from God. But when we elevate the gift of God above God, the, God's self, we may be worshiping an idol. Or take, for example, I was at Crater Lake. I love nature. Went to Redwoods, Crater Lake. And I love being out in nature, but I actually was sitting on top of Mount Scott looking at Crater Lake, deep, dark blue, beautiful picture. I'm sitting up there on top of the mountain, mountaintop experience, we call it, right? And I begin to ponder, God, am I worshiping you or am I worshiping nature? Am I, am I worshiping the serenity and the peace that nature provides for me and neglecting to worship you, the one who gave the gift to me? See what I'm saying? And I think sometimes we, in our Northwest world, what we do is we work really hard and then we go out in nature and we appreciate nature and we have gratitude, but we work hard to play hard, we say, but maybe this work and this play has become our idols rather than seeing them as gifts of God, right? To frame them rightly that, you know, my work is a gift from God, nature, creation is a gift from God, and I worship the one who gave me those gifts, See, there's a difference, isn't it? But whenever I elevate the gift above the giver, I'm setting up an idol in my life. You know, the other thing I think about is like when Jeroboam set up these two shrines and these two golden calves, what he was also doing was making it more convenient for people to worship there in the north than having to go to Jerusalem. Think about it. Like, it's, why don't you guys stay up here and worship up here? You don't even have to, you don't have to go as far, right? Especially if you're up in one of them northern tribes, right? So he created worship, places of worship that were more convenient for the people. And uh, that's one of the things I'm wrestling with right now with, with online worship. Like, I, I actually had this thought in my head. So there is no, I'm not saying people are guilty. I'm not, well, we all are guilty of something. But what I'm saying is I'm in there. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like standing, setting myself apart as like I never had this thought. I had this thought. It is so convenient to worship online, isn't it? I mean, those of you who join us online, isn't it just easier to stay in your pajamas, grab your cup of coffee, get a cinnamon roll or a donut or whatever your breakfast of choice is and just flip the computer on and, and just say I went to worship, right? Or I pre- went to... See, it's convenient. It's convenience that's driving that, Right? And there's, there's some good things in that. And so here's what I would say is like, are we not going to worship with others because it's more effort, <laughs> right? And it's not as convenient. Now, some of you are staying home for, the, to, for good reasons, for safety, for health reasons. I think that is very valuable and important. And I'd say stay home, stay online. That's not the point. Here's what I would say. Am I willing to go to another gathering of people, maybe even strangers in a restaurant that I don't even know. But when it comes to getting up and going to worship, I go, you know, I want to play it safe. That behavior shows us that actually it's not about safety, it's about convenience, right? So we have to weigh it. I would ask each of us to examine that idea, like, am I just doing it because it's convenient or am I doing it because I really have a, a health issue that I need to be concerned about, right? And that's a legitimate issue. I'm just raising it. I, believe me, there were times when, when we got back to in-person worship, I was like, I have to get up earlier now. You know, 
I got, you know, I, I actually have to show up more, you know, more. So I get it to a certain degree, right? So think about that. Are, are, are gods, are we erecting gods in places of worship so that it meets our, our agendas, right? That's what jo- Jeroboam was doing. The other thing that we, we learn in this story that begins in the story, and I'm going to give you the rest of the story, is that there's also this man of God, this prophet, and then this prophet from Bethel. So you've actually got a prophet from the southern kingdom and a prophet from the northern kingdom in the rest of the story. And so the, the prophet from Bethel, the older prophet, knows exactly what God told the man of God, the other prophet. He knew that he was not to eat or drink or be off, or take hospitality, and he was supposed to go a different direction. So he goes to, and he says, which way did he go? He gets on his donkey, and he goes after the man of God, the prophet, to bring him and to his home, even though he knew God had told him not to do that. So what does this older prophet do? Gets on his donkey, goes and finds him under a terebinth tree, now, terebinth tree would have been a big, broad tree that offered lots of shade. Other people might be gathered there. There's fruit on the tree to help uh, give energy. It also has medicinal purposes. So if there was any healing that needed to take place, um, those medicinal purposes could be found there. So this is a pretty good place to hang out, right? That's why he's there. In a way, God's offering him hospitality already. And so when this older prophet comes, what does he do? He says, you know, come to my house. But he does something that sometimes we do as humans. He plays the God card. Did you notice that? Like, God told me to tell you. Have you ever heard that before? God told me to tell you to come to my house. He's lying, right? He's, decept- he's using manipulation, deception, to try and get the prophet to do what he wants. So he's countering the word of God with what he claims is another word of God. Do you see how that works? This never happens in real life, does it? Someone claims the word of God that's counter to the word of God, (laughs) right? Sometimes um, this happens. I've actually, unfortunately, experienced this in life church, but, and I'm going to tell you about that in a minute, but here's what happens. So the man, they leave Actually, the older prophet, in the midst of their meal, prophesies that this young, this, this prophet of Jews is going to die and not be buried with his ancestors. So he prophesies in dinner because he didn't, do you understand it? Because he he's like, he's the one that tricked him to come into dinner. The man came to dinner. Now he's prophesying against him and says, you didn't follow the word of God. <laughs> like he set this whole thing up. And now he's prophesying against the other prophet saying, you didn't listen to God and God's going to take you out. Wow. Talk about manipulation and then like salt in the wound, right? So the other prophet, the, the prophet from the south, the younger, the man of God, he gets on his donkey and he leaves and he's a, here's what happened. Actually, let's take a look at the verse. Verse 24, later in the story, this is what happens. The man of God departed and a lion found him on the road and killed him. His body was thrown down on the road. The donkey stood beside it and the lion also stood beside the body. So a lion is sent and kills this man of God, basically for not following the word of God, even though he was deceived and tricked, right? So there's a lot of layers here, isn't there? What gets me, though, is look at this. Can you imagine? Just imagine with me for a minute. There's a dead body of the man in the road, 
But who's standing there looking at it? The lion and the donkey, right? There's a lot of bad puns that come to my mind right now, and I'm not going to say them. But the lion and the donkey are standing there. Now, the natural prey of the lion is the donkey, but they're standing there together looking at the body, right? So this is a strange phenomenon, which says, all right, God's up to something here. So think about this. If the lion had, a, had attacked the man on the donkey, would have attacked the donkey first, because the lions approach from behind, and it would have attacked the animal first, and then attacked the man. But the donkey's perfectly fine. It's like the lion just came across side saddle and just took him right out, right? But this funny image, we're left with this kind of weird, funny image of the donkey and the lion standing there peacefully together, like, look at this, right? Look at this guy. Look, he should have listened to God, right? That's part of the point. Like, obey the word of God, even if other people are trying to play the God card and trump the word of God with their God card. Does that make sense? Do we ever do that? Do we ever play the God card? Because here's what happens when we play the God card. We shut down the argument. There's no debate. There's no discussion anymore. I can just end it by saying, well, God told me so, right? And there the dialogue is shut down and whatever it is. So we have to know the word of God to be able to know when God or someone is manipulating it to meet their agenda, right? The other thing is when we do play the God card, it's dangerous because we don't know how we may be actually hurting someone else, by manipulating them with God, right? That's the other danger here. And that's why God doesn't want us doing it. I actually had an incident in church uh, many years ago. I was a young pastor. And um, we had a, a, um, a, a choir director that thought that they were above everybody. Like they knew everything. And they would use that phrase, well, God said so, and so this is what, God told me this. And they used this God card often, and so it came to a point where we as a church decided that we no longer wanted this person as our choir director, because they were playing the God card a lot. And so I went to them, and I, I don't know why they asked me to go, but I had to go talk to the choir director and say, hey, we'd like you to step down as a choir director. And her response to me was, well, I'll pray about it. I'm like, okay. So I left. Uh, Sunday was coming, always does. And uh, Sunday came and she showed up and she put her choir robe on and she went to lead the choir and several choir members did not come because of that. But she came anyway and she took over and she stood up in the church and said, God told me that I was supposed to stay as the choir director. I'm like, all right, great. So even though the leaders of the church had said that they no longer wanted her as the choir director, the pastor of the church said we no longer, you know, those in authority in the church had said this, that she played the God card. Said, you know, and what do you do? Like, what do you do? What do you do when someone plays a God card? Well, we always have another God card, right? No, I'm kidding. Uh, well, it's really Trump's, Spades, Trump's, no, I'm just kidding. So what we did, I actually called all, a meeting of all the members of our church. I said, let's bring this all out in the open. Let's, let's, not, let's be transparent. Let's, let's talk about this. And so we're not just going to bring our leaders together. We're going to bring the whole church together. 
Every member of the church was invited to this meeting to talk about this, and we discussed it, and then we made a, a decision to ask uh, to have to remove. We actually, um, you know, made an official motion to remove the choir director from her position and all other volunteer positions in the church. We talked about it openly. We talked about what was going on. She and her husband were there the whole time and a part of the discussion. And then at the end of it, we took a vote, and other, her husband dissented, obviously voted against that, but it was unanimous. The whole community said, we don't, we are asking you, we, in fact, we're removing you from being our choir director. See, the thing there is that what this person wasn't able to do was be in community with other people and couldn't listen to the community See, I do agree that we should listen to God over people. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes we can hear God wrong. And we can be so stuck in our ways and so stuck in our prideful righteousness that we can't hear from the community of people that God has put in our lives. Had that happened, that might have been a whole different scenario, right? But the point is, is that sometimes What's happening is not that we're trying to please God over people, but we're using God to stay in power. We're using God and manipulating the God aspect to get what we want. And we have to be aware of that temptation. There is a temptation to be so right and to assert our righteousness so much that we will play this God card and say to other people, God told me so. End of discussion end of, you know what else it is? End of community. End of relationship. I don't think that's what God wants, right? So we have to be aware of that temptation that we as human beings have to manipulate God's word for our own purposes. You want the good news here, though? The good, what's this mean for us? The good news is this, that no matter what human beings do, and no matter how many lies human beings tell, God's power and God's word always prevails. <laughs> That's the point of the, the story. That God's word is going to stand and prevail. God's power is going to stand and prevail, regardless of what you and I do or how we misuse or abuse God's word or these agendas or our own personal agendas or whatever. The good news is that God is, uh, is saying through this all, I'm still in charge. <laughs> I am still in power. I am still on the throne no matter what the human race decides to do to each other. <laughs> I think that's good news. I hope you think that's good news. I think it's good news. Here's the thing, and here's the thing we need to kind of be aware of. I brought a box with me today, and in this box is God. I put, I put God in a box. Do you ever do that? I, I mean, God's in this box. I mean, I can prove it to you. I mean, God, God told me to put, God, you know, there it is, right? See? God's in the box, right? And, and the, the thing about when we, do this, when we do this, when we put God in our boxes and we put a lid on God, right? Who's in control of God? Who's shaping God's image? right? That's what an idol is. I mean, if you think about an idol, an idol is something that we shape and fashion with our own hands and worship under our own power and under our own control 
because that we're, who's in control of the idol? I am. <laughs> and, and really what we do is we put God in a box. And here's the other thing. What's great is it's really convenient to have God in a box. Because here's the great thing about this. When you put God in a box and you limit God's power and you limit God's word in our life, here's the other thing we can do. You know, I'm tired of bringing God with me everywhere I go. I think I'm just going to put God over here and go about my life. Do what I want to do. Live under my own agenda, my own rules. shape, And then wait, maybe, you know, I'll come over here every once in a while, you know, get a little God back and then put God down when God doesn't, you know, cramp, you know, when I want to go do something that I want to do and cramps my style. So I just leave. See, the problem is, is that we're limiting the power of God. And this is a very, very, very small God that we create. Rather than the God of the universe. Think about this. You know how big the universe is? God cannot be contained by our entire universe. And we're over here, God must laugh every time we try and put God in one of our little boxes. Because God can't even fit in our universe. That's how powerful God is. That's how big God is. Let's pray together. God, help us to see you rightly. Help us to see your power and your word, how it prevails in the face of humans. We are constantly getting it wrong. We see that all around us in the broken world around us. We humans don't have it all figured out. Would we, you help us to see that? that? Would you help us to confess that we don't have it all figured out? We don't have a monopoly on you. We don't have you all figured out. Your power is too great for us. In fact, you hid Moses in the cleft of a rock just to catch a glimpse of your power and glory. He couldn't stand how powerful and glorious you are and had to be hidden from your presence because that's how awesome and powerful you are, God. Lord, we, those of us who go through this life making claims that we have a, a corner on the market when it comes to you, God, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for the audacity and the arrogance in which we play the God card in other people's lives. As we stretch out our hands in false worship of false gods, would you, would you redirect those hands and those hearts to you? Would you help us to see you rightly today? Lord, we confess that we have put you in a box. We have put you and tried to put you in a container that we've made and fashioned in our own hearts, in our own minds. Would you be bigger than that? Would you break out, out of our boxes? Would you break the lids off our boxes today and help us to see how great you are? To be reminded that the prophet Isaiah said that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts, says the Lord. Be that God for us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.